Welcome to episode 10 of the Brave Ideas for Social Change podcast series, produced by the University of Denver Graduate School of Social Work. The series draws on GSSW faculty expertise for fast-moving discussions on emerging research, practice, and policy innovations that will spur social change. Today's guest is Assistant Professor Aaron Harrop, who uses art, storytelling, and mixed methods research to tell patient-centered stories about healthcare experiences, particularly the experiences of people with marginalized identities. A focus of Professor Harrop's research is to increase awareness of weight stigma and acknowledge weight as an important aspect of diversity. Erin, thank you so much for being here, for sharing about this important work. Recognition of weight stigma in social work, I will say, after learning from you, is long overdue. Please tell us more. Thank you so much, Amanda. Um, You know, one of the things that drew me to the University of Denver and to the field of social work in general when I was a struggling psych student was this centrality of social justice. Um, I can remember reading the NASW Code of Ethics and its emphasis on social justice and that line that talks about the dignity and worth of every person and kind of knowing that this field could be my academic home because of that emphasis. Unfortunately, though, often in our social work circles, many people are unaware of how weight stigma fits into that social work, social justice lens. And so in my experience, weight stigma is not really discussed as frequently in our MSW or even our PhD level courses when we talk about issues of power, privilege, and oppression. And I think in general, we just have a little less comfort talking about body weight and size diversity you know, it it is a skill to talk about that. And it's not currently a skill that we teach in the majority of our clinical classes. Body size isn't frequently identified as a salient aspect of a person's identity, even though body size results in so many defining experiences of privilege and discrimination. In social work education, we frequently have conversations about the impact of racism and sexism and homophobia And in recent years, we're even seeing increases in how much we talk about things like transphobia and ableism. But I think in general, our field has been relatively silent around issues of weight stigma and body size. And oftentimes, unfortunately, I think sometimes in our field, we might actually inadvertently promote weight stigma attitudes. And often this comes in kind of like our health emphasis, and usually in a very well-meaning way that is focused on trying to help higher weight people kind of be healthier. And so kind of in this, in that system, size-related microaggressions are frequent. And I think most people don't even realize how those experiences or those comments can profoundly impact people who are in higher weight bodies. Erin, thank you so much for your critical perspective and your constructive perspective. I, I so agree with everything that you've just said. I'd love for you to just reflect a little bit more, maybe take us a little further in our thinking here. Why haven't social workers been more attuned to this issue? You know, uh, so I'm going to put on my researcher hat for a minute. Um, But when we when we study stigma, um, one really important aspect about different types of stigma is how socially acceptable a particular kind of stigma is. And I, I think this is really important for weight stigma because weight stigma for the most part is still seen as largely socially acceptable. 
the weight stigma is even seen as something that helps people become healthier. Uh, there's a lot of kind of social rhetoric that, you know, if fat people, just so you know, when I'm using the term fat right now, I'm using this term in line with fat liberation in that reclaimed sense of the word. With society, there's this worry that if fat people were to feel happy with their bodies, that they would be, you know, glorifying obesity or promoting unhealthiness, contributing to the downfall of society. But one thing that should be very clear to social workers is that stigma is never good for health, not individually, not at a population level. Shame is never good for health. So we really need to move away from relying on weight stigmatizing strategies and assuming that telling someone that their body is unacceptable or overweight or obese or unhealthy is helpful or good for their health. Many of our students in social work and students in other disciplines, especially those related to health, we're taught that weight is a mutable aspect of health that is largely the result of, you know, calories in and calories out. But that is a, a gross oversimplification of some very complex biological processes. Larger people are blamed for their fatness. It's assumed that they lack the health knowledge or health behaviors needed to achieve a thinner, healthy weight. And it's assumed that anyone in a larger body is inherently unhealthy. The reality is that weight science is so much more complicated than that. People can be metabolically healthy. So things like good blood sugars, good blood pressure, good heart health. They can be metabolically healthy at a variety of weights, even weights that are considered, quote, overweight or obese, according to current BMI standards. And just because a person is thin doesn't mean that they have good health behaviors. And just because a person is fat doesn't mean that they have poor health behaviors. So things like socioeconomic status, genetics, historical trauma, epigenetics, prenatal environments, even things like zip code, those are hugely influential in determining a person's body size and their health. But, you know, in general, most of our social work classes don't address a critical perspective on weight and health. Even in our health social work classes, weight is generally treated as like a risk factor to be changed or managed or controlled, as opposed to explored as a neutral aspect of a person's identity, or, you know, what I would promote as an aspect of, of individual diversity. By focusing on trying to change a person's body, and oftentimes we do this at any cost, we're causing significant harm to patients, especially to our children who are learning those beliefs and attitudes and to those vulnerable to eating disorders. You know, and in addition to doing that harm, we're missing major opportunities to do good and actually help improve people's health and health behaviors. I'm just so grateful for your scholarship and how you are opening up opportunities to do just that by teaching us. And speaking of teaching, it's pretty clear that the profession's got a long way to go. And that starts with how we train future social workers. I'm just so excited about the course you're teaching here at the University of Denver. Why don't you tell us more about it? I, you know, this is such a delight to teach this course. It's called Embodied Practice, and I developed it a couple years ago, and it focuses around issues of weight stigma and how weight stigma intersects with other forms of discrimination. And I did that because I wanted to make it really clear to social work students how weight stigma fits into our social work wheelhouse. 
So each week we examine a different intersection within weight stigma. We start with indigeneity and racism, and then we move to healthism and ableism. And then we start tackling other intersections like gender, sexuality, spirituality, and eating disorders. One of my favorite things about the class is that one of the primary tools that I use in teaching is an adapted version of photo voice, which is usually used in research, but I'm using it in teaching. And it involves like having students take pictures of where they see weight stigma in their daily lives. And so it's my hope that by using this exercise, we can actually teach students to see the world in a different way with this new lens of, of weight stigma and body liberation. My second favorite part of the class is that students also get to tell a body story about their body, and they can tell any story that they have that needs telling. And for me, this is always the highlight of the class to be able to see students kind of take ownership of their stories, retell their stories with all of their diversity and all of their different experiences, while also demonstrating this new understanding of their bodies and like what their bodies mean in society. That's so powerful. I can see how that would be liberating for our students, but also a basis of liberation practice for them. How do we translate some of that self-awareness into the practice setting and our way of just being in the world as individuals? You know, I often say that social work Mm -hmm. is always, you're never not a social worker. (laughs) So help us think through some of that. Uh, This is where the rubber meets the road, right? Um, I I think so much of undoing weight stigma starts with recognizing when it's occurring. Um, Most of us don't even maybe have awareness of when it's happening um, and how it might be harming people. I often start by having people like think about your own assumptions. So when I see a larger person, what am I assuming about them because of their body size? Like, how much do I think they exercise? What foods do I think they eat? How healthy are they? And then kind of back up and say, like, wait, like, do I actually know anything about what they eat or how much they exercise or what their health is? So how are my assumptions right now being influenced by my own bias, my own attitudes that I've inherited from this society that I'm living in? And it's also really important to think about power differentials. Um, And I think about this, especially in a clinical context, although we could also apply this to teaching. So um, thinking about how powerful it is when we can recognize and acknowledge your own thin privilege, if that is something that you have, if you are a person with thin privilege, and as well as helping our clients who might not have thin privilege to understand that the blame for the discrimination that they face because of their weight is not their fault. It's not their body's fault. The the blame goes back to discrimination and to society. Uh, So really, you know, I think the crux of that is that we need to help our patients develop a critical consciousness around weight, just like we help our patients develop critical consciousness around other aspects of their identity. And I think that critical consciousness is uh, really essential in helping clients heal from the harms of weight stigma. And then kind of in in general, I would say this, you know, just in terms of like applying, um, steering clear of some of these really common weight-related microaggressions that happen like every single day. So things like don't compliment someone on their weight loss, like literally pick pick anything else because you could be accidentally commenting 
an ongoing health issue. You could be complimenting their eating disorder. You know, you could be complimenting, you know, a negative mindset that's really harmful for them. So instead, just just don't comment on it. You know, similarly, don't comment on someone's food choices or compliment their exercise. Instead, focus our food conversations on things like how food tastes, the social connection of eating together, the cultural meaning. And when talking about exercise, focus on the experience, on how it feels to move your body in enjoyable ways or sometimes less enjoyable ways. And then um, be aware of how you talk about your body and other people's bodies. And be aware that even if you're just disparaging your own body or your own weight, others hear that. And if they look like you or if they're larger than you or they have a similar build, they can take that onto themselves as well. I so appreciate your tangible examples, uh, not only from your research, but your teaching and then how you help us think about it in practice. Let's talk a little bit about the field building work you're doing. You've founded the Body Liberation Imagination Project, which has the best acronym (laughs) since it goes by BLIMP. Uh, Tell me about how you're fostering collaborative weight justice work nationwide. Yeah, I I love that because I'm kind of reclaiming that, you know, fat insult of calling someone a blimp. Uh, (laughs) So people right now who are engaged in weight stigma work, um, to me, they seem really hungry for collaboration, probably because we're facing so many uphill battles when engaging with the dominant health paradigm, which is very loud and very certain about their knowledge. Um, but in Blimp right now, we have a group of about 30 researchers, and we're actually worldwide at this point. So we now have collaborators in New Zealand, Australia, and Canada. And they're, all these researchers are at kind of different points in their career, lots of early career folks, and some people who are more established in the field. And we're all trying to work together to accomplish this body liberation work. We currently have a lot of projects that Blimp members are engaged in. To highlight a few... There is a, what we're calling We Deserve Space collaboration, which is actually kind of centered at DU with uh, GSSW and the DU Counseling Psych Department and uh, working in collaboration with Denver Health. And we are developing an intervention to fight weight stigma in a free therapeutic support group setting for people in primary healthcare clinics. So we've piloted this group online with eating disorder patients, and we're actually running our first in-person multi-language groups at a Medicaid clinic here in Denver. We also have an RO1 under review that would be addressing how to bring weight-inclusive practices to primary healthcare systems. We have colleagues doing work on biofeedback interventions, and biofeedback interventions help increase awareness of people's internal body cues, which is really important for people whose cues have been disrupted by things like trauma or disordered eating or weight stigma. And then lastly, we also have people working in the field of eating disorders to increase awareness and screening, especially for people in larger bodies with eating disorders, and then to highlight how weight stigma is impacting those treatment experiences for people in larger bodies. I can't believe that weight stigma is still considered an emerging area of social work practice. I mean, it's really staggering because what I've learned from you and the work that you're doing is that truly the stakes are so high. This is a a matter truly of physical life and death. And I don't think we think of it in those terms. 
Yeah, weight stigma is absolutely an issue of life or death. People are literally dying from the abysmal medical care that they experience. And much of that is because of how that medical care is influenced by fat phobia. You know, we know in the research that fat people are less likely to get high quality care. They're less likely to be touched by nurses in a clinical encounter. They're less likely to have as much time as their thinner parts when meeting with a doctor. And that is the reality that I hear from patients every day when they're telling me their stories. The medical stories that I've heard that have happened to people personally or happened to their loved ones are horrifying. And on the, on the other side, when we think outside of medical care, that weight-based bullying, whether it's from you know kids at school, family members is one of the most common areas, and physicians is one of the next most common areas, that weight-based bullying is one of the leading causes of youth suicide right now. And to me, this really isn't surprising. Um, in a world where so much of our public health rhetoric is focused on ending childhood obesity, you know, how does it feel to be a fat child in a world that is trying to eradicate fat children? Erin, what recommendations do you have for us? I mean, as social workers, as educators for the profession, I this is urgent. This is critical. We need to act now. You know, I think first and foremost, like, and this is long overdue, ensuring that weight stigma is integrated into our existing PPO curricula is so important. We need to teach our students what weight stigma is and how it harms people and how to interrupt it. What is the alternative framework? And then in terms of things like our social work work environments and our cultures, we can do super basic things like ensuring accessible seating in our classrooms in our offices, in our clinics. We can also help the field disentangle weight rhetoric from health. Since our field is so focused on health, we need to help show social work that our focus is on health and not on weight. They are not the same thing. We can make sure that things like employer wellness programs focus on health behaviors rather than on things like weight loss goals or weight management. And then other things like, you know, and this might be a little controversial, but um, really carefully and critically examining how our social work programs are interacting with obesity medicine, I think is another really important place to start. You know, for instance, do we have practicum placements that are focused on weight management or weight loss? And if so, how are we ensuring that those students are well prepared to engage in those placements while not recreating the harms of weight stigma? Erin, you're just simply brilliant. I am so grateful for your comprehensive perspective. I also appreciate critical analysis, but also constructive analysis. Why don't you add it all up for us as we end this podcast? What is the future that you envision? I love this question. Um, You know, and for a long time, I think I just wanted a world in which weight didn't matter where weight was this neutral concept. And now, you know, I'm starting to dream of a world in which instead of on focusing on making weight a non-issue, we focus on making a weight-inclusive world for everybody, where we proactively facilitate connection and resources for people of all weights, where weight doesn't have to be a deciding factor in your access to clothing or travel or fertility treatment or equitable pay or recreational activities, or medical care, or surgeries, dating app profiles, social connections. And right now, all of those things are more expensive or less accessible, or not accessible at all, 
for people in larger bodies. You know, I, I recently sat through a conference presentation about lived experiences of obesity. And the entire presentation painted the lives of morbidly obese people, of which I am one, as dismal, hopeless lives where people have no friends, where they struggle to find meaningful work, and they spend all day hating themselves and engaging in unhealthy coping behaviors. It was so frustrating listening to this presentation because those are all the lies of weight stigma. And the reality is that fat joy exists. Fat people can and do live meaningful, enjoyable, active, connected lives. I do this every day. Um, there were moments in my life where I believed that lie from society that if I were to ever become morbidly obese, like my life would be over. But the reality is that's not the case. I'm still an athlete. I'm still an artist, an academic, a parent, an employee, and I'm just fat while doing those things. You know, when we get up all caught up in the rhetoric about the dangers of obesity, we paint a really bleak, shameful, depressing, hopeless future to fat people. And this presumed hopelessness severely impacts our health. But the reality is that fat people, they have friends, they have partners, they get married, they sometimes have children, they work at jobs that change the world, they hike and kayak and go camping, and there's fat bodies only yoga. They rock climb. They're Olympic athletes. They craft and cook and sew and garden. So I, I think when you're asking me what I like envision or what I'm hoping for, I think I'm I'm envisioning a world where we really focus on fat joy and joy across the whole body weight spectrum, where we can embody and experience our bodies for all that they are and they can do, where inclusion and accessibility are prioritized so that joy and activity are not being gatekept by size limits. And I'm also envisioning a world where people build community with each other, where fat people find joy with other fat people. There's groups like, you know, Denver fatties and fat girls hiking and fat babes in the wild. So there are places where this is happening, but I would love for it to not just be a couple people who know about those resources. And then, you know, lastly, I, I also think about representation. Like I, I envision a world where kids no matter what their body size, they see themselves reflected in not just in the world around them, but also in media, where they can be the main character and not just the fat, funny friend. And, you know, I'm really hoping for a world where children don't automatically discount themselves from joy and success just because of the uniqueness of their body and their inheritance from their ancestors. Yes, yes, yes. I completely share that vision. Erin, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and inspiring us today. Thanks so much for having me. Subscribe to our Brave Ideas for Social Change podcast for more conversations like this. Learn more at socialwork.du.edu forward slash change. <laughs>